we're going through the book of Mark. We're almost done. We started the first Sunday uh, on Mark chapter 1. Now we're at Mark chapter 15, and there's only 16. There are only 16 chapters in the book, so uh, we're getting really close. Um, and today's passage uh, is the passage um, is, is where Pontius Pilate uh, and met Jesus for the first time, and there was a trial, uh, uh, and Pontius Pilate had a trial of Jesus. So the, the whole passage today is about truth and the existence of truth and whether there is truth uh, and what is the truth and how do we express the truth and what are the effects of the truth. Um, and I, I um, thought I'd tell you just a little humorous exchange between a uh, – there was a businessman that was getting ready to start a, a local business and he needed to go out and find a lawyer to, to you know, just help him put his, his business together. So he was out interviewing these various lawyers, um, and he met one lawyer, and he said, uh, listen, you know, this, my business requires a lot of integrity, a lot of honesty, and so I just need to know, are you an honest lawyer? Are you an honest lawyer? And the lawyer says, yeah. And he says, you know, really, let me just tell you, I am such an honest lawyer that, uh, just to put it in perspective, my father gave me $50,000 to go to law school. Uh, and after my very first case, I paid him back every penny. And the businessman said, well, that's very impressive, very impressive. What kind of case was it? The lawyer kind of squirmed a little bit and said, well, he sued me for the money. Um, so, sorry. Uh, uh, so the question that is raised by today's passage is, what is truth? Um, Peter asks this, or uh, Pilate asked this question in the middle of the trial to G- with Jesus. Um, and so we're exploring this idea of truth. Truth, integrity, honesty, what is that? What does it mean? Um, so let's jump into Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 1. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away, And delivered him over to Pilate. Now you remember last week we discussed the the trial that Jesus had before the Sanhedrin. And then uh, Peter's denial of Jesus in the garden down down in the courtyard by the trial. Um, And then the next morning, and so the Sanhedrin had kept Jesus overnight. uh, The the governing sort of uh, governing body of the Jewish people kept him overnight. And then they brought him before Pilate. The reason they had to bring him to Pilate, um, Pilate was a Roman prefect, and, and the reason they had to bring him to Pilate was because Pilate, only the Romans could issue um, an, an execution. The Sanhedrin could not do that. They were not entitled to do that. They didn't have the authority to do that. So they brought him before Pilate to uh, have him sentenced to death. Um, what's interesting, in, in one of the Gospels, it, it actually mentions that they wouldn't go into Pilate's house for fear of becoming defiled so that they wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. So here they are trying to execute an innocent man, uh, ready to go the distance with that, but unwilling to step into a Gentile's house for fear of becoming defiled. So sometimes our priorities kind of get a little bit out of whack. Um, So Pilate was a Roman prefect. This is a a picture of him. Uh, He was a Roman prefect that was basically the governor of Judea at the time of Jesus' life. 
Uh, he ruled from, I believe, 26 to about 36 A.D. Jesus was crucified roughly 33 A.D., 33, 34 A.D. Um, so... Pontius Pilate is this figure in history that is sort of uh, was sort of puzzling for people um, because he's 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 a character that is just first of all ten years as a Roman prefect was not a compliment to a person being the prefect of Judea was like being sent to Siberia as a low level bureaucrat um, and if you were the and what most of the governors did most of the prefects they would be there two three four years then they would move up the ranks right. And then, but, but Pilate was not moving up the ranks. Um, he was sort of stuck in this job, which he didn't like. He didn't like the Jewish people. He didn't like being there. Um, there are a couple first century um, historians, Josephus and Philo, and they describe Pilate like this. They say Pilate was vindictive, ill-tempered, stubborn, cruel, wantonly unjust, given to bribes, insults, and robberies, and executions without trial. He was brutal and un- unnecessarily provoked, the people of the region. Pilate was not a popular guy. Pilate was not a fun guy. Um, in fact, he was removed by the Romans in AD 36 because his, his soldiers got into a really bloody melee with the local locals, uh, some religious pilgrims, and finally Rome pulled the plug on Pilate, and we never hear from Pilate again in, in all of history. So I don't know what happened to him, but uh, he was removed from his small level of power. Have you ever met somebody who gets just enough power to make them dangerous. Um, um, seems like the people that check you through the, uh, the uh, you know, the metal thing, you know, not, 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 all, not all of them, but I've had a couple. Um, we didn't have any physical evidence of Pilate until 1961, and a, a group of archaeologists um, uncovered what's called the Pilate Stone, and this was found in a, a, a city called Caesarea, which is right up on the Mediterranean. Um, and what this is, this kind of is sort of classic. Uh, Pilate, or Pilate built a building in honor of the emperor, Tiberius, his boss. And it says, to the divine Augusti Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this. So this is one of those guys, I think they call them brown nosers. But, um, you know, he's he's obsequious uh, to his boss, you know, he'll sort of bow and scrape to his superiors, and he is flagrantly uh, cruel and brutal to his inferiors. This is sort of the picture of Pilate. This is who they're bringing Jesus before. Um, So in uh, verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now here's the the, the point of Pilate's question. Pilate did not care about Jewish theology. He didn't care whether Jesus was claiming to be Messiah or he didn't care about any, anything to do with Jewish theology. In fact, in John, when they're going back and forth, Pilate says, am I a Jew? Do I care about your religious ideas? No. All he wants to know here when he says, are you king of the Jews? Are you a political threat to me? That's what he wants to know. Are you going to try to create an uprising, a revolt, and, you know, overthrow the Roman government? If so, I've got to quash you. If not, then what, what are you doing here? Um, and Jesus answered him, and this is a very, uh, it's, it's an answer that has troubled a lot of 
uh, commentators because it's not absolutely clear. You know, when he was talking to the Sanhedrin and they said, are you the king of, J of the Jews? He was emphatic. He said, yes, I am. And not only that, I'm the son of man that's coming back on the clouds. I mean, he gave them, he gave them a, an answer that blew their minds. With Pilate, he sort of says, he says this, you have said so. Um, the Gospel of John also records this conversation in slightly more detail, and I thought I'd put it up there for you. In John chapter 18, um, this is the conversation that they have. Pilate says, so you are a king? Jesus says, you say I am a king. I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. And Pilate says this fascinating line, which I think was incredibly cynical. Some of us might ask this question sincerely, but in light of the circumstances surrounding Pilate, I think he was being cynical and brushing Jesus off. When Jesus says, I've come to testify the, to the truth, Pilate says, what is truth? And is dismissive of him and walks away. Um, then in verse 3 of Mark uh, 15, and the chief priests accused Jesus of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, talking about the feast of the Passover, uh, Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. This guy Barabbas was part of a, a Jewish uh, insurrection, a revolt against the government, and he had murdered someone and he was in prison. And so Pilate brought him out and said, um, should I release this man? And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For, this is interesting. Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. In other words, Pilate got it. Pilate perceived that Jesus was being unjustly tried. Pilate figured out that the chief priest had brought him forward, had brought Jesus forward, not because he had done something wrong, but out of envy, because they didn't like his popularity, because they didn't like how many people were starting to follow him. Um, so he got that. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release for them Barabbas instead. Who's Barabbas? Um, we don't know a ton about Barabbas. The, some of the early texts actually give his first name. His first name, ironically, was also Jesus. Um, Jesus was a, was a common name at that time. Uh, and Barabbas is his last name. Um, the New Revised Standard Version, I think, keeps his whole name in there. Um, Bar means son. Abba means father. So it's a very interesting sort of dynamic. Um, there's Jesus of Nazareth that claims to be the Messiah, and then there's Jesus Barabbas, and Pilate is literally going, which Jesus do you want me to release, and which Jesus do you want me to execute? That's what he's saying. Which Jesus do you want out of here? Um, so, verse 12, and Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What shall I do with Jesus of Nazareth? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate 
wishing to satisfy the crowd, placating the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What is stunning to me about this passage is Pilate's flagrant disregard for the truth. Throughout this scripture, he keeps saying, I know this guy's innocent. He has done no wrong. I know it's out of envy that the chief priests want him killed. And yet, to please the crowd, to placate the crowd, he orders him to be killed. He releases a known murderer and murders a known innocent man. Um, he had so, uh, he, he, for so many years in his lust for power, he had compromised his principles so many times, compromised his morals so many times, that he gets to the point where he's absolutely ready to completely relativize truth altogether. What is truth anyway? What does it matter? What is justice? Who cares? You want this guy murdered? That's who I'll murder. You want this guy free? That's who I'll, that's who I'll free. So it, it, it's an incredibly cynical position that he takes. Um, it reminded me of the line, and I know I'm going to date myself, but there was a movie called Rainmaker, and Matt Damon becomes a lawyer, you remember, and then the, he meets this sort of crummy lawyer on the other side, and he says, do you even remember when you first sold out? Remember that line? He says, do you even remember the first time you sold out? Because the guy was just so... Truth didn't matter to him. Justice didn't matter to him. Reality didn't matter to him. At this point, it was about making money and having power, and Matt Damon calls him out for it. That, I think, is what is happening with Pilate here, is that he's just, he just doesn't care. We all have, in our own life, in our own experiences, strategies for avoiding the truth in certain situations, because the truth is not always what we want to face. Um, strategies for denying the truth. Um, one is rationalization. Um, I was on a, when I was in law school, I was a, the um, comment, what they call the senior comment note editor at my law journal. So that means when people would write their, their papers for law journal, then I would read them and give them feedback and then, you know, they would hopefully get them published and that kind of thing. Um, a girl turned in her paper to me. I will never forget this. this one, one, of the, one of the students in the law school turned in her paper. I'm reading her paper, and I'm thinking, man, this just is not a very strong paper. The grammar is not good. The points are not clear. Um, you know, it's just, it's just not, it's not a very good paper. And so I was going to try to work with her to try to, you know, make the paper better. Then on about page three, the paper became incredibly well-written. I mean... It just flowed, and the reasoning was sharp and crisp, and it was clear, and it was brilliantly researched, and it was, and I'm reading this, and I'm going, this is not, something's wrong here. Something is wrong here. So on, on about page three, I just took like two or three of her sentences, and I typed them into Google, and up popped a, an article by a well-respected um, uh, law professor on this topic. This student had plagiarized for her paper. She had grabbed a big chunk of text right out of another article. Didn't bother to change anything, really, uh, and pasted it into her paper. 
and turned it in as her own. And, you know, there were, I don't remember how many, ki how many people on our, on our journal, but, you know, these guys were up day and night, working hard, doing site checking, doing all this stuff. And for someone to just grab a big chunk of text and throw it in their document and turn it in as their own, it was just, uh, you know, I, I remember just being sort of shocked, actually. Um, and maybe it was more prevalent than I knew, but this was just so blatant. So I went and talked to the, the other people on the staff, and we said, all right, well, we gotta, we got to bring her in. We brought her in, and we presented the evidence to her uh, of this plagiarizing. And I really thought that she would go, I am so ashamed. I am so sorry. Am I, you know, this happened or something happened and I couldn't do it. And so I just did this and I so apologize. And that's what I thought was, was going to happen. And then we were going to try to, you know, work with her. And I, I don't, but it, the response was completely different. The response was, well, so what? I mean, this is a first draft. And so rather than me have to go through and do all the research, I just thought, I'll just get these facts from here and then I'll do my analysis. And she like had this elaborate justification for why she had done this, which made me inf more infuriated than I was even before. Um, so we escalated it up the chain and I don't, I don't think she's practicing law today. Um, but, but the point is, rather than accept the truth, deal with the truth, apologize, try to get it right, she completely rationalized and justified her conduct. Um, another technique that we like, all of us, is avoidance. I have a good, uh, Rebecca and I had a, some friends that were a really, really cool couple, and we really liked them, and we really got along with them and hung out with them a lot. Um, and we noticed that in their relationship, there started to arise some problems between them. You, it started to become obvious. You could hang out with them, and it was just like, huh, something's not clicking. They're not, I, it's hard to describe, but it wasn't like you could point to a specific fact, you know, but you just hung out with them, and you went, hmm, something's not right. Um, and I remember talking to the guy who was a friend of mine and tried to bring it up to him and say, hey, is everything cool, man? Is everything okay with you guys, you know? And it, somehow he was so able to deflect my questions. Like it was, suddenly we would slide into talking about a band or suddenly we would slide into talking about something different, you know, work or something. And I never, and it was, and then like after the conversation, I'd be like, oh, wow. I had asked him a question, and suddenly we were over here, and now the conversation's over, and he's gone, and I never got an answer. He was, he was completely avoiding this discussion. Obviously did not want the truth of what we were talking about to bubble up, um, which led into the next strategy uh, that we all use at times in our life, and that's called denial. Finally, when I did, we had, actually we had a dinner with them, and there was a particular evening where... We sat down. It was the four of us. We had a dinner, and it was so blatantly obvious at that, t at that point that these two people basically didn't like each other. At that point, it was like, I don't think they even like each other. After the dinner, Rebecca and I were both going, wow. So I called him up, and I go, hey, I want to talk to you about something. I have a specific thing to talk to you about. So we went, and we sat down, and I said, I want to ask you about what's going on in your relationship because Rebecca and I both noticed that you guys are like not something is something is wrong um, and he absolutely denied denied it completely what are you talking about and the problem was I couldn't exactly say you know well you said 
X, Y, or Z. Because he hadn't said, you know, it was one of those things where it was just like you could tell. But absolute denial. And then it was not, not very many months later that we discovered, you know, that, that sort of, that conversation sort of ended, didn't end our friendship, but it sort of put the friendship on the back burner. Um, and then shortly after, we, we learned that they had separated and gone their separate ways. Um, so we deny we deny, we, we deny the truth as a way of, of not dealing with it. Um, and finally, we relativize the truth. This is something that is very popular um, on college campuses uh, where you've all heard the phrase, all truth is relative, right? Everybody's heard that. All truth is relative. Um, I'm not a philosopher, and there are some philosophers in here, uh, a, few, a few of you guys, so you can straighten me out afterwards, all right? Herb uh, and Ryan and Philip. <laughs> um, the proposition that all truth is relative is a self-defeating proposition, all right? Re- the, all truth is relative is the idea that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and there is no real absolute truth. There's just different people's perceptions, and those perceptions are truth for them. This concept is a self-defeating concept. I don't mean to get all nerdy and philosophical, but to say that all truth is relative is a statement of absolute truth. So if that's absolutely true, then all truth can't be relative because that is a, an absolutely true statement. Did I say that all right, Jason Fry? Was that okay? You'll straighten me out this week. Um, the idea, though, that all truth is relative, it is a self-defeating concept. It's, it's just it's demonstrably false. Um, but that's what Pilate was employing in this conversation. What is truth anyway? Basically saying there is no truth. Um, Herbert Eger says that the truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. Um, And Winston Churchill says men occasionally stumble on the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. (laughs) Um, What is truth? There are a couple of uh, theologians and, and, and scholars that sort of deal with this issue head on. Ravi Zacharias, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a great preacher. If you just type his name into Google, click on the first YouTube image that comes up and listen to him speak. He's a really, really bright guy. He says that truth is that which affirms the nature of reality as it is. In other words, truth is what describes the world as it actually is. Um, uh, R.C. Sproul says that truth is that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. I like that particular description. It's reality as God perceives reality. That's truth. Um, you know, kids will tell you the truth. Kids don't have the relativizing, you know, uh, gene in their body. Yesterday, I was with, re- playing with Jameson, and I don't, I don't something happened, and, and I smiled, and, and Jameson says, Dad, what's the matter with your eyes? And I go, I don't know, what, what do you mean? What's the matter? He's like, you've got cracks all around them. <laughs> and I'm like, Rebecca thought that was hilarious. She's like, that's because your daddy's old. Um, uh, and then later in the night, uh, right before we went to bed, we decided to do a little drawing together. And I said, okay, I'll draw, I'll draw the family. And he was drawing the house, so I was drawing the family on the front porch. So I drew these little stick figures, you know. And he looks at them and he goes, um, well, hold on, Dad. Can I have the marker? And I go, yeah, sure. And he goes, I need to draw your belly. So he, like, draws a nice belly. I'm like, okay, it's time for you to go to bed now. Thanks, Jameson. Um, 
as Christians, the, 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 the scriptures teach us that truth exists. The existence of truth is, the re is a reality. Not all truth is relative. Truth exists, and it is to some degree ascertainable, knowable, reachable, accessible by us. Uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, and so as Christians, we affirm that truth exists and that it is knowable and that we can perceive it and that we can approach it through the life of Christ. Uh, so the existence of truth point is that we must always seek the truth. Don't fear the truth. Don't avoid the truth. Don't sidestep the truth. Let us seek the truth. The second point that comes out of this passage is the expression of truth. Just, ex just accepting that truth exists doesn't mean that we always express it. Um, in fact, we often go to great lengths to bury the truth, obscure the truth. Um, my mom used to be a, she ran a preschool, and a little boy had gotten in a fight with another little boy, and so she brought the little boy into her office, and she said, now I want to know why you got in a fight with that boy. And the little boy thought for a minute, and he says, because it's my birthday and I forgot to bring you a cupcake. I thought that was, and my mom was just like, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that because that's a very nuanced lie. And, um, and it's, so we try to obscure the truth. Um, if you've been reading the news and the sports page this week, um, San Francisco Giants star Melky Cabrera uh, has gotten in a little bit of trouble. Um, this is a guy who was hitting 346. He had 11 homers, 60 RBIs. This guy's a major all-star. This guy is awesome. And then he tested positive for some uh, banned substances in his system. And that happens sometimes, and guys get in trouble for that. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they say, hey, I'm sorry, that won't happen again. They move on. Melky Cabrera took a step further, uh, and he and some of his um, associates created a false website where there was a false, a phony product, which he claimed to have purchased and inadvertently ingested this substance which showed up in his bloodstream. So he went through this very elaborate scheme and this ruse to try to make it appear that he hadn't done what he had actually done. Um, that doesn't make uh, Major League Baseball very happy. So it's not, you know, if you notice, it's not necessarily the thing that we do wrong, it's the cover-up that really gets us in trouble. Um, as Christians, we are called to not only know the truth or seek the truth, but to speak the truth, to put it out there, to express the truth in our hearts and our lives and what we say and what we do. Um, John 8, chapter 16 and verse 17 says, No one puts a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Jesus in this passage is saying, everything comes to light. Everything comes to light at some point. Better to shed light on it now. Better to open things up now. Don't put it under a bushel. Don't, you know, let it out. Put it out there. Uh, Ephesians 4, 14 and 15, Paul writes, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. By speaking the truth, by living the truth, 
by not hiding, we, we mature, we become what God wants us to be, we, become, we grow into the body that God has called us to be. Um, we've all experienced situations where we don't want to speak the truth because we're afraid of reprisal, because uh, it's not expedient for us, it's politically inexpedient for us, or we're afraid. Um, and there, is, there are times where we should use discretion and wisdom. You don't, you don't shout, you don't necessarily have to shout the truth from the rooftops under all circumstances, but you've got to be moving towards truth. You've got to be moving towards speaking the truth. And as Christians, we're called to be beacons of light. We're, spo- we're, we're called to be tr- the truth that shines in the darkness. Um, and so God has called us to that. And finally, the final part of this exchange, the final sort of theme that I think arises in this exchange, and the one that I like the best, is the effect of truth. What effect does truth have in our life? Aldous Huxley says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you mad. Um, which is also true. Um, I've had, I had, a, I had a, uh, a friend that I was working on a project with, and he and I did not see eye to eye on this project. And we worked on this project together for months. And we didn't, no one ever brought, and no one, it, it, it wasn't rising to the surface that we disagreed. It was sort of this thing where every time we would stop working on the project, I would say to Rebecca, man, this just really aggravates me and frustrates me that he's doing this or saying this or whatever. Um, and so for months, this went on like this. And finally, one day, I just, after we had been working on it for a while, I stop and I go, you know what, let's get some stuff on the table. Here's what I'm, I'm upset, and here's why. And I like laid out for him why I was not happy with the way the project was going. Lo and behold, he wasn't so happy with with the way the project was going either. So he says, you know what, there are some things that I'm not happy about. And he started laying them out about things that I had been doing during this project that made him upset. And there was, there was valid, he had valid complaints. And after this conversation, we both said, okay, we can work through this. We can work this out. And I will never forget what he said to me. He's a, he's a dear friend of mine to, even today because he said, you know what? I want you to know that I am grateful that you honor and appreciate my friendship enough to expose and bring out this difficult conversation. Because that means that it's worth our friendship, our work on this project is worth fighting about. And if you hadn't brought it up, you know, it, eventually it would just be like, eh, whatever. It would have been like the, 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 the other guy that I was telling you about, you know, where, where the truth never was able to come up. And I just really appreciated the fact that by speaking the truth, both of us speaking the truth, even though we didn't agree on everything, we both exposed the truth about what we were upset about. And it allowed us to move forward. Um, John 8.32 is the famous passage. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are called to speak the truth to God, to speak the truth to others, and to speak the truth to ourselves. All of us have, have issues going on in our own lives that we are not being completely honest about. We either need to, we need to come clean with ourselves, with someone else, 
with the, you know, the appro an appropriate person. Um, and, and just know that you will be liberated by speaking that truth that you are so afraid to speak. Has anyone ever experienced that where you, you just finally just say it, you just get it out there and you go, I feel so much better now, <laughs> so much better. Um, in my own life, you know, there were years where I wanted desperately to sort of make it on my own, didn't want God in my life, didn't want my family in my life, didn't want, and I just sort of held everyone at bay. And as happens in these situations, my life was not going the way I wanted it. But that's something I didn't want to admit because to admit that would admit weakness, would admit, you know, that I need help and all of that stuff. Didn't want to do it. Too stubborn, too proud, you know. But finally, finally, I, and, and I had a great prompting from my older sister who said, Brent, you know, your, your approach, your way of life used to be sort of intriguing and mysterious to us. And I go, yeah, okay. I like that, intrigue, mystery. She says, but now, Brent, it's just kind of sad. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was a really tough thing for her to say. And I, I appreciate so much that she said it because I had gotten to that point where I was like so stubborn, holding so many people off, holding so many people at bay. And people were starting to see, you know what? He's not happy. He's not living the life that he wants to be living. And so finally, as I started to just bear my soul and just open up to God, to my family, to my friends and say, I need help. I can't do this on my own. That is when God began to come into my life and liberate me in a way that I will be eternally grateful for. Letting go of the fear of the truth is absolutely liberating. Um, one person, and I'm going to close with this, one person in this crucifixion story, this story of, of Christ's suffering, tells the truth in such a way that is so beautiful and it's so liberating. And the high priests and Caiaphas, they were not telling the truth. They were lying. The Sanhedrin were lying. The elders were lying. Pilate knew the truth, but wouldn't express the truth. He wouldn't free the innocent man because of, he was afraid of reprisal. But there was one man who did. When Jesus was on the cross, he, there, were, there was a thief on either side of him. One thief turned to Jesus and said, if you're the Messiah, why don't you free yourself and us, mocking Jesus, mocking Jesus' situation. The thief on the other cross says, we're here because we deserve to be here. We are serving the just sentence for our crime. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me when you're in your kingdom? And Jesus turns to him and he says, this day you will be with me in paradise. You will be free. You will be liberated from this, the shackles of this life. You will be liberated from the cross and you will be in paradise with me this day. Why? He spoke the truth. I deserve to be here. I sh I'm a sinner. I need help. Jesus, help me.
God, help me. You will be with me in paradise. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. I just want to challenge you this this week. Seek the truth, speak the truth, and enjoy the freedom that the truth will bring into your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so 